This is the Lightning Junkies Podcast with your host, Chaz Kryptoson. On this episode of the podcast, we have Ruben Somson, founder of the Soul Bitcoin Meetup, co-host of the Unhashed Podcast, and the author of the State Chains idea. In this 10th episode of the podcast, we discuss State Chains, how they relate to Lightning, L2, and much more. I think with Ruben being a fellow podcast person, it made this a very conversational podcast, something that's a bit newer for me, but I think something that you as a listener will quite enjoy. Before we jump into the episode, I do just want to remind you about my crowdfunding campaign. If you take anything away from this podcast, please consider chipping in Bitcoin, either on-chain or over the Lightning Network at crowdfund.lightningjunkies.net. If you want to tip me with tipping.me or bottle pay, or maybe even LNCast, you can find those links in the show notes. Starting sometime next week, anyone that pledges over 100,000 Satoshis will also be getting a Lightning Junkies sticker. If you do end up doing that, please make sure to email me or otherwise contact me so I can follow up for sending out your sticker to you. Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this episode. I would like to go ahead and welcome Ruben to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you doing this evening? Hey, I'm doing fine. Thanks. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and jump into things here. Could you let me know your background before we jump into the Bitcoin stuff? Uh, yeah, sure. So I kind of started off as a uh, meetup organizer. Um, so I've been in uh, Seoul for, uh, well, running the uh, Seoul Bitcoin meetup since February 2014. So quite a while. I started off just kind of, uh, you know, being excited about Bitcoin, learning about it and wanting to talk to other people. And I didn't really see any other meetups uh, in the area. So I just kind of decided to start one. I would say like that was for me kind of the way in which I also learned about it by talking to other people and kind of trying to explain to them the things that I learned by, by reading stuff online. And especially at the time, it was very difficult to you know, learn kind of like details about how Bitcoin works. And uh, a lot of stuff was still being figured out. And, you know, I, I would take like a week trying to understand like a little detail. And then, you know, at the meetup, I could explain it to, you know, dozens of people. And um, I would say uh, that's kind of, uh, you know, I'd say like teaching. And that's kind of a secret that like people that don't really teach, they don't really know. But the teacher learns the most. <laughs> it really is a, kind of a, a way for you to digest information and only when you, once you can explain it to other people in a way that they, they really get it, you have kind of a good model, mental model in your head. Um, and I'd say like slowly just by, by doing that over the years, um, I started to uh, kind of become able to actually contribute back to Bitcoin and be active on the mailing list and uh, add some of my own ideas. And uh, I would say state chains is kind of the culmination of that because it really is a bunch of different you know uh, techniques that other people came up with that initially i was just looking into because i thought it was fascinating 
and uh, I put them all together in kind of a new novel way. Uh, and that is, uh, yeah, the layer two idea that that's called state chains. Absolutely. So it to me, it kind of sounds like you had some influences from uh, Richard Feynman, maybe. Uh, Richard Feynman, um, not not particularly. No. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Because uh, his big thing was just, uh, you know, you you learn the most by teaching and kind of filling in the gaps. You know, I see. Like that. Yeah. But um, anyway, uh, so would you say that you kind of got your start in Bitcoin? through the meetups or was there a bit of a background before that? I would say, yeah, I would say that's where I got my start. I would say I'm all, I've always been kind of a, a learning junkie. So the way I approached Bitcoin, I would say is, I guess, very typical of what I do, which is really going deep and into the weeds and figuring out all the stuff. And I felt particularly with Bitcoin, um, just the more I understood about the system, the more I realized how important it is to really understand it because you can't really be a Bitcoiner without having some kind of understanding of the system because otherwise, why why do you choose Bitcoin and why not some other altcoin? And the, the, the answer to that question is inherently technical. So for me, I kind of felt like, hey, I'm you know organizing these Bitcoin meetups and there are all these other coins around, but do, do I really understand why Bitcoin is you know the one that is makes sense and all the others don't. And uh, yeah, I, I think just my eagerness to um, figure out answers to those questions. And uh, I guess I'm generally, you know, I like technical stuff. I, I, I do, I'm not a programmer, but I do hobby programming. Um, so it kind of just led me through that path. And uh, yeah, it was fascinating. All right. Uh, so uh, I've definitely heard of the uh, Soul uh, Bitcoin meetup kind of just, you know, talking to people, hearing about things, you know, and a lot of the different meetups throughout the world are very unique and have their own kind of thing kind of uh, going for it. What would you say would be the uh, unique thing about the Soul Bitcoin meetup? It depends on like what angle you take, but compared to other Bitcoin meetups, um, I would say we are long running. We've been doing this for a long time. We kind of, you know, over time, I think we kind of learned what was a good way of doing it. And what we settled on is kind of monthly meetups that are open to everybody and weekly technical meetups for people that are really willing to dive deep. And, you know, the, the problem is kind of that you have these two audiences, right? You have these, uh, you know, people that are just interested superficially. And I think those, you know, that's fine too, but those are not really the people that are going to take the time to really learn it in detail. So I, I try to kind of like have events for both and, and that way kind of, you know, uh, we, we, we end up with these groups of, of people that really want to learn a lot and people that just kind of like casually learn a little bit about Bitcoin. Got it. Do you think that the uh, meetup kind of caters to one particular crowd or did, or do you think it, it does a good job of kind of catering to the kind of both of the ones you mentioned here? Well, I'd say these days people kind of know what Bitcoin is. Um, so I've been feeling more and more that we need to focus more on the technical side of things. And that's also where my passion lies. Uh, so I would say over time, the meetup has definitely been transitioning into more of a developer-focused uh, kind of high-level uh, technical meetup. Uh, and uh, But yeah, at the same time, like I think that the, the, the trick is to get new people to still come in, right? Because the what happens with meetups, especially if you're technical and if you have the same crowd coming every time, 
then it's very difficult for a newcomer to kind of come in and be comfortable and, and learn learn the basics because nobody's talking about the basics anymore. So that's kind of the one thing I would I would say uh, to anyone who, who tries to organize meetups is try to have some kind of window, even if it's you know once every three months or whatever. Try try to have a window where where newcomers can kind of be guided into into that core. So like, I, I'm definitely aware that, you know, during the bull market, the uh, meetups were kind of like overflowing with the kind of newbies or the tourists or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But definitely in the bear market, I'm not quite sure, sure if that's the case. What has your observations been as far as kind of newbies kind of coming into the meetups? Well, I, I wouldn't say like, I, I mean, there are definitely more newbies during a bull market, but I think depending on like who finds your platform or like like in this case we're using meetup.com uh, you know there's always going to be people that are just curious and they just show up like I would say 9 out of 10 people you know they don't they're not going to be there every week uh and and go uh, going deep and maybe that's also particularly because we're in South Korea and I would say there's less of an um open source kind of free learning attitude here. So so people don't really uh, want to invest time in something that doesn't obviously relate to a job. Uh, so that kind of uh, plays into it as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, you, you really, you, you get both, uh, I think, regardless of whether it's a bull market or a bear market. All right. Um, I just wanted to move on a little bit here. I was kind of doing a, a little bit of uh, research on you here, and I saw that you actually have your own podcast as well. Do you want to tell me a bit about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's called Unhashed Podcasts, and um, it's basically me and three other guys, um, the Bill Fodel guys, uh, Brian and Colin, and Mario, who uh, is, uh, well, they're all, all friends, but Mario, uh, he's uh, kind of got his start at the Soul Bitcoin meetup as well, but he moved to Canada. Um, and yeah, so that's uh, kind of a podcast where we both go through the news and try to also be technical, but kind of at a, uh, you know, a very beginner conscious level. And, you know, it's a little bit more of a fun podcast where we, we, we make some jokes and uh, I would definitely recommend you check it out. And it's, um yeah, it's a, it's a fun podcast and it's fun to do. Um, uh, have there been any recent episodes that are, you know, especially stand out or especially good episodes you might recommend to a person listening for the first time? Um, so we recently did an interview with Hasu about the uh, kind of the mining rewards dwindling and uh, how to handle that in the future. Uh, that was a very interesting uh, episode where uh, it was quite technical. Uh, I would say that's kind of a different kind of episode from what we usually do because, you know, it's uh, it, it was really an interview and we were focused on the guest. But uh, that's a great episode. And just gen generally, if you want to learn some more technical details about mining, uh, I thought it was great. Then episode 54 was pretty good. It was me and Colin rocking it. Um, that's just kind of more more of an average episode, I, I'd say, where, you know, fun episode and you kind of get an idea of like what we usually, uh, what we're usually up to. Got it. Okay. So before you kind of mentioned the state chains thing, and I think that's like the, the primary reason why I wanted to kind of have a talk with you here. Yeah. Do you want to give us a, a quick synopsis of what state chains are and then we can kind of dive deeper here? Uh, yeah. So yeah, let's get into it. Um, I assume that's what everybody's listening for. <laughs> right. um, so basically, I would say, you know, the first thing I think that's important to kind of get into is is layer two and why it matters um, and what what we're kind of trying to achieve here. So we've got this Bitcoin blockchain and really 
it it doesn't scale in the sense that every time, you know, if I want to send you some money, I sent you this transaction, the transaction goes to the Bitcoin blockchain and everybody has to verify that transaction. And not just everybody that's running a node today, but even everybody that's running a node in the future. And that's just kind of insane when you think about it, right? Like we, just me and you sending a transaction and then everybody having to check it. So that's really the uh, scaling issue that is trying to be solved, things like Lightning. And I would say Lightning is a great solution. Um, it's, it's probably the most kind of true to Bitcoin solution in the sense that it is really trustless in a sense, uh, but it does have constraints, uh, new constraints, which are uh, kind of throughput and routing issues. Uh, you have to have these channels, you have to have these routes, and there has to be uh, sufficient liquidity in these routes. And if there's not, um, then you are kind of forced back on chain. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, I would say, kind of the, the, uh, the lightning limitation. Uh, and, you know, despite that being a limitation, it's still, um, it's still incredibly useful and incredibly important. Um, so so there, uh, that's kind of the, uh, I'd say, the most trustless layer two system. But on the other side of the spectrum, you also have something like Coinbase. Uh, and people don't really commonly think of Coinbase as a layer two, but you know, we can both have a Coinbase account and I can send you some money through a Coinbase. It doesn't have to hit the blockchain because it's all you know, a Coinbase central, central server taking care of it. And that is a way to also scale transactions because... Basically, only Coinbase needs to settle every once in a while with, uh, you know, uh, BitPay or whatever other uh, payment provider. And that would be like one huge transaction. And, and that's one way of scaling Bitcoin. But obviously, this is like the, you know, as far as possible removed from what we're trying to achieve here with Bitcoin, because now you're back to just trusting this entity. And if they say no, well, then you lose all your coins, right? They can just confiscate it. They can do whatever they want. The intermediate solution to that is something called sidechains or, or federated sidechains specifically. And you know, at a high level, it really is just kind of a multi-sig of uh, a bunch of parties instead of one party. So instead of just trusting Coinbase, you might say, okay, we'll trust Coinbase and BitPay and a couple of exchanges. And this is what, uh, for instance, uh, um, Blockstream is doing with uh, Liquid. And this is, a, this is an interesting model in the sense that now... You are trusting a bunch of these these parties, but you're trusting so many of them, and you're kind of trusting that they don't collude and and get together and and screw you over um, like that. And and this this kind of adds some trust, but but there are still some limitations here. And I would say state chains are kind of a in the middle solution where it it veers a little bit more towards Lightning, but it still kind of relies on this this idea of of a federation. Uh, but what it's trying to do at a high level is removing as much power as possible from from the third parties that you're trusting. So you've got this federation, you've got these these people that are are signing on your behalf. But with state chains, you're giving them as little power and knowledge as possible. So the first uh, the first way this is done is through uh, basically uh, blind signatures. So that means that. You're you're locking up your money with this uh, with this federation, but they can't actually see what money is yours. So you you basically you ask them for a key, and then you send some money to that key and and a key of your own. But because you never tell them that you actually sent money to it, and you never kind of give them any proof 
of where that transaction appears on the Bitcoin blockchain, they don't actually know that they have your money. Uh, so that's kind of the first step. And despite them not knowing, they can actually act like a, uh, um, like a sidechain in the sense that they do control the money, but they just don't know it. So the second step is to actually make the um, so-called pegout the default. So the weakness of a, uh, a sidechain is that you basically have to ask permission when you want to get out. So you have to uh, contact the uh, federation and you have to say, hey, please give me my coins back. And then they have to sign a transaction and that transaction goes to the Bitcoin blockchain and now you have your coins. So with state chains, the pegout, uh, getting out of the, uh, out of the federation is the default. Whenever you move the money or whenever a new owner receives the money, they actually receive an on-chain an off-chain transaction that they can send to the Bitcoin blockchain at any time. So if, if, the, if the federation disappears, you can still get your money. Uh, this really kind of improves the security model in the sense that um, with a sidechain, what happens is if one third uh, decides not to sign, then your money is basically frozen. Whereas with a state chain, you can actually have it up to 100%. So only if they all get together and they all collude, then they can take your money. But as long as even just one of them is, uh, is honest, then the worst thing they can do is kind of force you on-chain. So you have to send your, your, uh, off, the off-chain transaction to the Bitcoin blockchain and you, and you get your money back. So from that perspective, it's, it's a lot more secure. And yeah, I would say... Those are really the um, kind of the, the core uh, features. And I guess one more is that you can't, they can't actually take your money unless they somehow acquire uh, a secret from one of the users. So what kind of happens is there are two keys and one key is with the users and one key is with the uh, federation. And the, the key of the users it could get leaked. Like if the if the uh, federation really tries, they could get the key. But if they behave and they act uh, normally and they don't actually actively try to uh, cheat, then they would never actually obtain that key. And the reason that's important is because if let's say if the federation wants to be honest, but a regulator comes to them and says, "Hey, um, you're engaged in this illegal activity." So first of all. Uh, because of the blind signatures, they would not actually be aware that they're engaged in illegal activity. But let's say it, it gets shown to them and they're like, oh, okay, yeah. So then the second thing is if they're asked to confiscate the money, they can't actually do it unless they have that secret from the users. Yeah, so that really kind of makes it from a regulatory perspective kind of interesting because now the question really is like, are they actually controlling any money? Because they only have one of the, one of the you know, let, if, let's say you consider that two of two, they only have one of the two keys. And that really begs the question, like who controls the money? Absolutely. So I find, I, I guess I wasn't aware of the kind of uh, privacy implications there that, uh, you know, it could be a lot more obfuscated than what I maybe kind of naively thought here. Yeah. So it's, um, I think uh, the, the confusion here, or the thing that is confusing is that there's, there's the users having privacy from the federation. And then there is kind of a obfuscation of knowledge that allows the federation to act in a way where they can't be held responsible for holding the money because they actually don't have the information about it. So really from the perspective of the federation, all they're doing is a user comes to them and asks them to sign, sign a thing. And they, they don't know what the thing is, but they just sign it. And that's all they do. And 
while they're doing that, they're actually sending money, but they, they're not aware of it. Got it. Okay. So let's kind of go take a step back here because I just kind of wanted to make a, something that I'm kind of curious, kind of clear here. Yeah. So if I'm understanding correctly, what's happening here is rather than kind of like in the Lightning Network where you're moving uh, HTLCs around, you're you're kind of trading entire uh, UTXOs. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that is correct. So in order to kind of achieve the uh, the added security and the added obfuscation, uh, there is a trade-off, and it, the trade-off is essentially that yeah, you're you're dealing with entire UTXOs. So with a sidechain. You really, you just give the money to uh, uh, the federation and you can split it up in any way you want. And then you just ask them to to give it back to you. Uh, but w- in, with this model, because you have to have this kind of off-chain transaction, it has to be linked to a specific UTXO. And that specific UTXO means that really you can only trade the entire amount. Uh, so yeah, that is, uh, that is the main limitation. And there are ways to get around that, uh, which among others are the lightning network which is why state chains and the lightning network kind of they're they're a really good pair they they really work together really well let's uh, jump into that a bit there so you know let's say you know we had state chains going how could i kind of use that in you know would i be using it with a lightning network or would i be using it in some other fashion. Yeah, so because of this limitation of sending entire utxos you really run into this issue where you know let's say i have a uh, one Bitcoin UTXL, but I owe you 0.9 Bitcoin, for instance. So there are two ways you can deal with that. The first way is to try to find somebody who has a 0.1 and a 0.9 UTXL and trade with them. So that's one way you, uh, of doing it. But even then, like you can still, you can only get to an amount that is as small as the, you know, the minimum viable UTXL on the Bitcoin network. And if we're expecting fees to go up to like $10 or something, then that would be the minimum. Like, well, well, that wouldn't even be the minimum because you're at least paying that fee. So, you know, with a $10 fee, maybe a $100 UTXO is the minimum. So if I want to send you less than $100, uh, this system really can't accommodate it. So the secondary way of doing it uh, is, uh, and, and this is actually kind of interesting, is that because you're trading UTXOs and you're kind of like really transferring the ownership of it, you can actually pre-spend the UTXO before it hits the blockchain. So if I have a one Bitcoin UTXO through a state chain, then I can already create a transaction that spends it. And that spending transaction can be kind of a lightning, uh, lightning open transaction. So I can create a lightning channel while I have a Bitcoin uh, on a state chain. And what this does is... Basically, it, I, I I give joint ownership of the the coin on the state chain to uh, my you know the, the party that I want to open a lightning channel with, and then we have this actual uh, lightning uh, off chain transaction that you know basically just exactly how the lightning network works. So on both levels, on the level of the lightning network, uh, the control is both let's say me and you if we have a channel, and on the state chain it's also me and you. And what that means is that we have a channel. I can so so the example I gave before is right. I want to send you zero point one. So I I I take my one Bitcoin UTXO. I send it to you, but before I send it to you, we create a channel out of it, and zero point nine goes back to me. Zero point one goes to you. So then we essentially you have a lightning channel on top of a state chain. And the interesting thing is that let's say over time, eventually all the money is at your side, 
And then if we were on the Lightning Network in general, then we would have to kind of close the channel or have to try to rebalance it or something. But because we're on a state chain, as long as we're both in agreement, I can just sign over the entire UTXO to you. And now you can take the UTXO and you can do with it whatever you want. You can send it to anybody who also you know, is willing to participate in state chains. Uh, you can open a channel with somebody else. So it kind of creates a another layer of where you can open and close channels as long as everybody's cooperative. And this, uh, this really kind of gets a fundamental difficulty with the Lightning Network kind of out of the way, right? Because the opening and the closing of the channels, that is kind of where the friction is. And now you can you can do that off-chain, provided that you are willing to accept the trust assumptions of, of a state chain. Got it. So that's uh, definitely one of the advantages that I think I originally kind of understood from state chains is that, you know, you could basically be doing scaling on top of scaling, because if we could, you know, reduce the amount of open and closed channel transactions, that could definitely be advantageous. Um, how far? Yeah. How far do you think, you know, that it's likely to be taken in that way? Do you think, you know, let's say state chains become very uh, common? Uh, do you think that scenario would be a very common scenario that you kind of laid out there? Yeah. So, you know, you can do something similar on a side chain like Liquid, uh, but the advantage of doing it on a state chain is that you basically are lowering the trust assumptions. So I think the question of whether or not uh, this is going to be used a lot really depends on, well, a couple of factors. Like, first of all, do we need more security than what a, a sidechain like Liquid provides? If the answer to that is yes, then maybe state chains are kind of that level up where it's secure enough to... Because like, what are you secure against? Really, at the end of the day, it's it's government regulation. Uh, that's that's what could bring a, a sidechain like Liquid down. Maybe state chains is the better answer to that. So, so that would be the first kind of answer. Got it. Okay. And then if, if I'm understanding correctly, there is a, a future improvement to the Lightning Network called L2. And um, as I'm understanding it, that would give a another big advantage to kind of the uh, use of state chains and with the Lightning Network. Is that right? Yeah. So actually L2 is essential because we have this problem where what L2 does, it changes the model of the Lightning Network from a penalty model to kind of a a model where you can overwrite transactions. So if we if you send an old state to the uh, you know, so we have a we have a UTXO. There's one Bitcoin. I sent you 0.1. I sent you another 0.1. So now you have 0.2, and I have 0.8. Then I try to send a prior state where I had 0.1 and you had 0.9. Traditionally, what happens is you can take all the money, right? That's that's how the Lightning Network works today. But with L2, you can overwrite that state. So I'm I'm sending a transaction to the Bitcoin blockchain that says I you only get 0.1 then you send your more updated transaction to the blockchain saying that you actually have 0.2. So it's a different model. And the reason that's necessary for something like state chains is because you have multiple owners. It's not just two people that have a channel. It is the money moving from Alice to Bob to Carol to Dave. And they're all holders of kind of an off-chain transaction that could put a claim on the Bitcoins that are in the UTXO. If you don't have the update model, but you have the punishment model, then the question kind of becomes, well, who who receives the benefit of the punishment? You know, if the money goes from Alice to Bob to Carol, Alice cheats and Bob punishes, then Carol's screwed, but Carol had the money. 
So it, it kind of doesn't work out with a, with a punishment model. So anytime you have more than two participants in a channel for whatever reason, whether it's state chains or lightning uh, channel factories, uh, L2 is the way to go. And you can't use a traditional punishment model. Got it. So kind of beyond those kind of points, are there any other advantages to using uh, state chains with the lightning network? Yeah. So I would say like kind of the, the, the best way of looking at it is that it, it really kind of solves the uh, the limitations of the so they they solve the limitations of each other because with the lightning network right you have this problem of of well is there a channel is there a route and if there's not then um, you know you have to open a, a new channel and now you can kind of open that channel on the, on a state chain so it, it you just stay off chain and Again, with the uh, with the state chains, is the opposite problem. It's well, you know, you can you have one Bitcoin and you can really send it to anybody who who is willing to trust uh, the kind of the state chain model. But then, if you want to send less, you know, if you want to divide that amount up, then you really need something like Lightning. So they just really kind of work together really well. And you can even do something like have a you know Lightning channel factory on a state chain. And it would kind of allow you to move participants in and out uh, while remaining off-chain. So things like that are really kind of um, desirable and useful. Uh, the only thing that uh, needs to be mentioned is that it still relies on the same assumption that the Lightning Network functions on, which is that both parties cooperate. If one of them doesn't cooperate, then you are forced on-chain. And this is the same with uh, state chains. So if you open a Lightning Channel or a Lightning Channel factory, on a state chain, and one of the participants uh, stops participating, uh, then you really your only uh, option is to go on chain. Got it. So a a piece of like fud or you know common misconception of the Lightning Network is that you know in order to open up a channel for everyone on the planet or whatever, it would take you know a hundred years or something silly like that. Do you think that general concept is kind of moot, you know, with state chains, the, the Lightning Network channel factories, things of that nature? Yeah. So I think the question is kind of a, you know, red herring in the sense that we have no goal or obligation to get everybody on Earth on the Bitcoin blockchain on the Lightning Network. Like that's not a goal you can you can state. So I mean, opinions uh, differ on this, and you know, let me be clear and say that I would love for everybody to be on the Bitcoin blockchain, for everybody to have a Lightning channel. Like that is, you know, I will it would make me so happy to see the technology achieve that level of uh, uh, use. But the reality is that the technology is inherently limited. And the limitation here that you're describing is the number of UTXOs that can be created per block. And that really doesn't change whether you use a state chain or you use uh, the Lightning Network. And it's true that uh, a Lightning Channel factory or Lightning Channel factory on a state chain, like it doesn't really matter. Um, it's still like one UTXO. Uh, that, that helps, but you're still kind of, you know, stuck with this problem that if, if one person stops cooperating, well, you have to go on chain. Um, so so really, yes, there is an inherent limitation. And I think it's it's not, you know, you shouldn't think of it as like, we have to get everybody on the Bitcoin blockchain, otherwise uh, Bitcoin fails. I think it's, it's more of a um, us trying to get the best technology out there and make a scale as much as it possibly can and get as many people on board as possible. And 
there will be a limitation and maybe, you know, a hundred years from now, maybe then finally everybody can go on chain because computers are so fast that everybody can run a full node uh, easily. You know, like we'll get there eventually. I don't think we should think of it as there being this goal of of getting everybody on chain immediately. Uh, it, it really is just kind of us trying to make the technology as good as it can be, getting as many people as possible on board and accepting that that's going to be limited inherently and and it's not going to reach everybody tomorrow uh we'll get there someday but probably not anytime soon and that's just the reality uh, and you can desire for reality to be different uh, you can make trade-offs that kind of damage the fundamental thing that makes blockchains valuable in the first place to get your to get your scaling but i think that's very clearly the wrong trade-off the only reason that bitcoin is valuable in the first place is because it's this trustless system where I sent you a Bitcoin, the Bitcoin is now yours, nobody can say or do anything about it. And and that comes with limitations inherently. Got it. So I'm just going to take that kind of uh, line of thought and just go down a tangent here, if you don't mind. Yeah. You know, we've definitely had these kinds of arguments in Bitcoin for, for many years. You know, that's where we got, you know, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV, etc., Obviously, because you're in Bitcoin and you're kind of pursuing these kind of uh, layer two solutions, I'm guessing you're uh, not a proponent of larger blocks. Is that right? Yeah, that is that is correct. I, I don't think it's a very interesting thing to pursue because it, it really is a very simple trade off, right? You're just you're just taking a number and you're increasing it. And it's basically kind of saying like, hey, everybody in a network go work harder so we can do more transactions. And, you know, you can say that once, you can say that twice, but eventually people are working as hard as they can. And they're just like, hey, I can't keep up. Um, and, you know, it, it's like having a company and saying, okay, well, we're going to work from eight hours. Now we're going to work nine hours every day. Now we're going to work 10 hours every day. You know, eventually there's like a limit where people say like, okay, can't work here anymore. Uh, and so it's kind of simplistic. It, it doesn't really solve anything other than just making things a little bit bigger and but eventually you're going to run into these limits and the only way of of really getting around that i think is making these layer two trade-offs and uh and that's that's why i focus on that and that's why that has my interest understood but would you say over a long enough timeline do you think the, the block size will ever be changed or are we sitting at one megabyte for forever yeah so i guess a, a more kind of meta point that i i maybe should make is that I, I think there are a lot of people out there that are kind of like you know have these uh, maximalist tendencies of saying like oh you know the block says will never change it and uh, just being very kind of hardcore in their in their reasoning i don't think that's realistic or, or reasonable uh but you know that's kind of i think what happens on twitter kind of naturally so i would say a lot of the developers that that i speak to they they don't have that mindset they are just very conservative and cautious and that means that you are you don't have any expectations you don't have any promises you don't you don't say like oh we're definitely going to scale like there are, there are lots of issues with actually increasing the block size and the the split that we saw with uh, uh BCH that's kind of one of the uh the issues there where sure you can increase the block size but well, good luck convincing other people to kind of agree with your your block size increase, and that's literally what happened with uh, with BCH, where they did it, people didn't like it, and now they're stuck with a network that nobody's using. 
So, you know, getting over that that hurdle and, and convincing everybody to go along with your your block size increase, uh, that is not an easy thing to do. And, you know, you can go around and you can blame the people for not switching because misinformation, blah, blah, blah. So that is that is really kind of one one very difficult thing to do. And I think the only way we can we can get a block size increase in the future is if it is really, really obvious that we need it. And it's really dire. And we've talked about it a lot. You get you got to kind of wait until the last possible moment to get everybody to be on board with it. And and that is really kind of one thing that's difficult about it. But very generally speaking, look, uh, 20 years from now, computers are going to be so much better than they are today. And we're going to have the same block size limits. Like eventually, if not 20, then 40, it's going to eventually look silly to have the block size that we have today. It will take a long time. I don't think we're anywhere near having that issue. Yeah, eventually, uh, I think we will get to a point where we, we got to think about maybe doing a hard fork and, and whether or not that's going to be possible by the time or whether through ossification, uh, it just kind of becomes almost impossible or, or maybe even we don't even have the problem anymore because layer two solutions are so incredibly good that the current uh, limitation is actually sufficient. Uh, I mean, that's all impossible to tell. And I think the the only kind of answer here is being open-minded and just moving into the future with a conservative mindset and slowly, you know, considering the possibility, but always keeping in mind of how difficult it actually is to achieve. And um, yeah, and where we'll end up, like nobody can predict. And I think actually making those predictions is is probably like a little bit of hubris, right? Because you just can't know. Absolutely. I would probably agree with everything you said there. I, did, I probably want to kind of keep on this tangent here for another moment. Do you think, you know, maybe kind of relating back slightly to state chains and the Lightning Network, do you think the there will ever be a, a fee, uh, a transaction fee that would be large enough to make kind of all of it just not work anymore, that it would just be too much for anyone to kind of you know, use layer two or anything and everything just kind of falls right. apart. I'm uh, I'm loving these tangents, by the way. So, so keep them coming. This is, uh, this is fun. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. So I would say that's kind of, you know, it, it, it's, uh, I mean, I guess the classic analogy is the, the restaurant is too popular, you know, something like that where sure fees can be really high, but fees are only going to be high if there's somebody who's willing to pay them. So there's going to be a use case for them. And I, I think this goes back to scaling again, where, if demand is so much higher than we have space for because of these inherent scaling limitations, then you're going to see really high fees. And that is really a popularity thing. If, if it's not popular or because the fees are too high, people stop using it, well, the fees go down. So I think that would be a success in the sense that there apparently is a lot of demand for, for the block space that we do have, uh, even though it's insufficient. So that is, I think, one potential future that, yeah, I, I think just could happen and needs to be accepted in the sense that that might be where the scaling limitations lead us. Uh, I don't want it. I would hope for everybody to be able to just transact as cheaply as possible forever uh, without any issues whatsoever or or security uh, uh, degradation. But yeah, one of the p- possible futures is really high fees that only uh, rich people can afford. The blockchain will be useful for them. And the blockchain may not be as useful for the world, or maybe through layer two solutions, other people can still use it in, in a way that is uh, is sufficiently useful to them. So do you think that there is a 
transaction fee that things are likely to kind of reach and stay at? Or do you think it's just going to be a very variable kind of uh, market there? No, I mean, uh, I, I my if I had to guess, I think fees are going to go up. And that's going to be a tough pill to swallow, I think, because, you know, people are not really feeling it right now. But, um, you know, once fees consistently become $10 or more, if we if we get to that, that's, uh, yeah, that's going to hurt. Uh, but it, the to the level that it hurts, I think it also forces people to think more seriously about layer two solutions. So, you know, that's generally, I think, how the world moves forward. Uh, you got to kind of experience a bit of pain for there to be uh, progress. So I feel like it'll work itself out. And, you know, I at least am like thinking really deeply about having these alternate solutions for layer two in order to kind of have this secondary place where you can go. But even those layer two solutions, even something like Coinbase, right? Let's say well, let's say we call Coinbase the ultimate layer two solution and everybody should use it. Uh, even if you do that, you still have the on-chain requirements because if you literally cannot withdraw your coins from Coinbase because the transaction fee is so high that you can't pay it with the money that you have, you know, I mean, that would be kind of a ridiculous example, but then your money isn't safe with Coinbase because Coinbase can say like, look, uh, I'm going to restrict this money. Uh, you you can't use it freely anymore uh, or you know, maybe even like remove the peg altogether uh, and you have no recourse. You can't just get out and, and go back to the Bitcoin blockchain because the fees are, are too, too high. So it also affects layer two in, in that sense. Yeah, how that's, uh, that's going to work itself out, uh, it's, it's hard to say, but yeah, again, we just got to try our best to to make it scale as, as far as we possibly can. Uh, I just I just think it's really important for people to not, you know, not put their expectations too high or or have it, you know, have this goal in mind where all oh, this many people have to use Bitcoin. Um, it is a technology. It has limitations where it takes us. We don't know. Got it. I'm kind of enjoying these tangents as well here. So. If let's say fees kind of do go to the $10, how do you think, you know, that would affect, you know, state chains and the use of the lightning network? Do you think that would be a pretty big deal at that point? Yeah. So I think what you end up needing is, so I think the the high level way of like, let's, let, let's take lightning, right? Like I think the high level way of thinking about it is you're locking up a certain amount of coins and you get a certain level of transactions from it. Like even if you lock up $100 on the uh, on the Lightning Network, that $100 can move back and forth millions of times, theoretically. And, you know, maybe you sent a million dollars worth of value through that $100 uh, UTXO. I mean, that would be unlikely, but if, you're, if your UTXO, you know, survives forever and you never go on chain, it's theoretically possible. So now, let's say you pay ten dollars for a one hundred dollar UTXO on on the on the on the chain, and to close it again, you have to pay another ten dollars. So you could say, okay, well, you're paying twenty percent of of your money right there. But if you use it for ten years and you manage to send a million dollars through it, uh, and received also a million dollars because otherwise you can't actually do it. Well, then you pay twenty dollars for a million dollars of transactions, essentially. So that's one way in which it can be worth it. But, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, you open your channel, uh, the party you open it with leaves right away, uh, you're forced to close the channel, uh, and now you're out 20 bucks of 100, and it really sucks. So, 
yeah, that's uh, it can kind of go both ways. And, uh, you know, maybe if that's kind of a scenario, people will be more cautious who they open their channel with and, you know, make sure that that party is likely to cooperate with them. But yeah, that's uh, that's about uh, the way it will go. Understood. So, I mean, like I'm getting the impression that, you know, if, you know, fees went to $10, you know, just for opening a, a lightning transaction, we're likely to see a lot of innovation and a lot of businesses kind of being washed away. The ones that kind of are, you know, doing like a, um, well, the one that comes to mind right now is Breeze that kind of opens up a channel to every, you know, user of their wallet just by default. So do you think we're likely to see a very different landscape at that point? Yeah. Uh, I mean, for sure. Like, Look, I, I think lightning today, it's very early. Like even if we get like a, another bull market or something and, and fees go up uh, significantly because of all the arbitrage that people are going to perform, you know, lightning is going to suffer. And it's still early stages with lightning and people are still figuring it out. Uh, and I think those kinds of, um, those kinds of, I mean, you could call it a, a, you know, an expected catastrophe. Like it's going to happen. The lightning network is going to adapt and people are going to use it differently after that happens. But eventually something will come out that is useful. Like I think Lightning Network is just useful at every fee level. Even if we're at 100 bucks, uh, it just means you have to open larger channels and you have to perform more financial transactions through it before it's worth it. But it's still a useful technology. So no matter where we go, no matter where the fees end up, uh, Lightning is useful. Lightning is important. Uh, but you're right that the dream that people have of um, being able to have channels for everybody, uh, having it be cheap always, there are no friction. Uh, I, I would be very careful to hold that dream because that is not something that's guaranteed at all. And and I would say, you know, that's one thing I worry about. And that looks very similar to, you know, in 2014, like people were thinking of like, everybody's going to use Bitcoin for payments and all the shops are going to accept Bitcoin. And we kind of have a similar hope for the Lightning Network today that might not fully realize. And, you know, if the fees skyrocket at some points, then all the people who believed that and thought that that was going to be a kind of a fact and it was promised to them, they're going to be disappointed. So I, I, you know, that's again, like one of those things where I think it could lead to, you know, another one of those BCH like splits. If people are too naive about that, uh, we have no guarantees of where it's going to go. It might not be easy for you and your friends to buy a beer and lightning network in the future. That might be difficult or, or, or complex or require a lot more work than, than people expect. So I'm just going to ask one more kind of tangent question before we kind of uh, go back around to state chains here. Kind of along that same line, uh, do you see, you know, the the general FUD that kind of comes up is that it's going to become, uh, the, the Lightning Network's going to become very centralized and everyone's going to use a custodial wallet do you think that there's a real danger of you know things like this happening? Well, it still works uh, regardless of whether you are using custodial services. And I think it's very hard to predict what shape it's going to take because the the problem with using custodial or sorry, uh, you, well, not using custodial. Well, if you're literally using custodial service, well, then you're just using something like Coinbase, right? But if you're locking it up with, with some central um, third party and everybody's going through that same third party, well... That third party needs to put up a lot of capital, actually, uh, in order to do that. Because uh, if everybody just opens channels, then then there's no there's no outgoing liquidity. So in in that regard, I think the actual liquidity wise, the most efficient 
shape of the network is actually a, a shape where the channels represent the flows of the money. So if that central uh, party that everybody opens channels with, if, if they naturally would have received all that money, then uh, then it would make sense for them to kind of become a hub like that. But if that wasn't the case, then I don't think that's the most efficient shape. So you, you can think of it as, you know, you go to work, uh, your boss pays you once a month. So it makes sense for uh, your boss and you to have a channel. And then maybe instead of paying you every month, he'll pay you every day because that that uh, helps with liquidity in, in, in the Lightning Network. And then your boss is people that he's paying. So he's a channel with them. Uh, then the person that your boss is paying, uh, they own a shop and you go shopping there. So then you pay them through your boss. And and that's kind of, I think, the the most efficient way to use liquidity. And putting a, a third party in the middle there and having everybody connect to them, it makes things easier from a routing perspective. So it's kind of trading technical complexity for uh, for liquidity. And I think at the end of the day, if we get rid of all the technical complexity or if we you know, solve it all with, with good technology, then I, 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 I'm tempted to say that we're going to see the more natural uh, non-hub uh, uh, model. But, but even with the mob, hub model, even if there were just hubs, it's still a fact that you can close your channel and get your money back no matter what the hub does. So it might be kind of a privacy problem where the hub learns a lot of information. But in terms of trustless money, it's still trustless even if you go through a hub. All right, absolutely. Uh, let's go ahead and jump back to state chains here. Could you kind of give me an idea of what the major disadvantages uh, state chains would have, you know, maybe just in general or versus uh, other layer two solutions? Yeah, that's a, that's a great. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's important to, uh, to really mention the downsides. Compare So really, it sits in the middle of side chains and Lightning. Uh, compared to Lightning, it is less trustless, right? It's not trustless. Lightning, you can call trustless. I mean, depends on your definition of the word, but let's call it trustless. With state chains, it's a little bit closer to a sidechain in the sense that you have a federation. And if the federation really wants to screw you over, if all the members of the federation are saying like, Ruben, we're going to take your money, then uh, they can really, they, they can get it done. They, they can make it happen. So there is a third party that at the end of the day can screw you over. But we're just limiting that to the, you know, to the most kind of difficult situation that's possible. So first of all, they don't even know they have my money. Second, if they want to take my money, they need literally, well, depending on how you want to set it up, you can set it up uh, to a degree where literally everybody in the federation has to uh, sign off on it. So even if one member of the federation says, no, I'm not screwing anyone over, uh, then you're safe. And kind of a downside of, of, of having like a 100% like that is that uh, if, if one member of the federation just disappears, then everybody's forced on chain. So, you know, you might want to do like eight out of 10, nine out of 10, something like that, uh, just to make sure that at least, uh, you know, a couple of the federation members can disappear without everybody being forced uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain. But, you know, that's that's kind of, uh, that's a better trade-off than what, what sidechains are doing because with, with sidechains, you you literally have um, you basically you know if it's a if it's a usually it's like a six or seven out of ten um, situation and then if if four people uh, decide not to sign then your money is basically frozen and and you lose it so that's uh, you know it's roughly twice as secure you know if you look at it in a very naive way yeah so that's uh, you know but still like the at the end of the day the federation 
can take your money if they really want. Got it. Okay. So I just maybe wanted to kind of ask a little bit more, you know, uh, it sounds to me like this is mostly theoretical for right now. Are, are there any kind of plans to actually implement state chains anytime soon? Right. So so first of all, I am not a full-fledged developer, so I'm not going to be the one who um, uh, will be implementing this. Uh, I've received a few requests to kind of uh, come up with a um, a description of how how this would be built and what would be necessary and kind of like have a minimal viable uh, state chain and then kind of like have you know, things you can add to it to make it more fully fledged. Uh, so maybe I should go write up a document like that. But um, as for now, like the the main limitation that we have is that it still requires a soft fork uh, that enables L2. So if we don't have L2, then state chains don't work. There might be some alternate implementation. Maybe Liquid has like sufficient uh, opcodes in order to make something like this work. So maybe like a, a demo implementation could be built on there, but I'm not even sure if that's true. So kind of as of right now, there is no, yeah, there's no actual place to build it. So that's, uh, that would be kind of the first step that we get um, so-called SIGASH no input, which is uh, the requirements for um, for L2. Got it. Do you think we're we're likely to get uh, SIGASH no input? Yeah, I think, um, I think so now I would say, you know, we're still like everybody's focused on Schnorr and Taproot right now. So that's the first thing that's going to got to go through but already there's uh there's kind of a ongoing conversation on the bitcoin dev mailing list where people are uh discussing you know what really the downsides are of sigash no inputs and how we can potentially implement it and it i my feeling is that everybody wants it to go in because it is a really kind of a fundamental improvement to have you know, if not state chains, uh, at the very least, uh, lightning channel factories. So everybody wants it to happen, but just I think there's a lot of discussion that still needs to happen to in order for people to be really comfortable that we're we're getting the best possible solution with the the least number of downsides. Um, so that will take a, a while, I think. Just looking at how long Schnorr and Taproot took, right? We still don't have it implemented. Uh, so that's still, you know, a, a way, uh, you know, it's going to be a while before we get that. And I, I would say we won't really, like, even though theoretically it's possible to do both soft forks just independently and implement them, I think the, you know, the developer attention won't fully go to it until we're, we're kind of finished with uh, Schnorr and Taproot. So. It'll be a little while, I think, before before you get there. All right. So I, I kind of wanted to ask some kind of broader Bitcoin and Lightning questions here. But before we do, do you think there's anything about state chains that I've overlooked that you maybe wanted to to finish explaining, or do you think we're good? I guess one little tangent that I will just kind of hint at that uh, I, I don't think we need to get into, but uh, there is an interesting combination you can do with uh, state chains and hardware security modules. So because you have this two two key setup where one key is with the federation and or well it, it's a multi-sig so it's multiple keys but let's let's call it one key and there's one key that's with the users you can actually have a hardware security module that kind of manages that key and what that does is it kind of adds to the security in the sense that as long as the hardware security module is is secure so so what you can imagine you can imagine two things like let's say i want to send some money through a state chain to you, uh, we can have kind of a um, 
you know, you have these little USB keys that you can give to people that have a, like a private key inside. Yeah, open the name of this. Open done. Thank you. Yeah. So I have one on my my uh, uh, key ring, but I forgot the name. Yeah. So if you have an open dime, uh, you know, you could you could have that be the second key, so I could physically give it to you. And uh, and the alternate method is something called remote attestation, which means that you kind of have a hardware device, I have a hardware device, and they talk to each other, and we transfer that second key through there. What that does is that as long as the hardware security is is, is up to par and it doesn't break, then literally the Federation cannot cheat, even if they wanted to. And so it adds another layer of security. And what's interesting is that you still have this off-chain transaction system, which is important because if you rely fully on hardware security to to move over keys, or you know, if I give you the open dime, if the open dime breaks, the money is gone. Uh, but if you combine it with something like state chains, you still have this off-chain transaction. So the open cha- uh, the open dime breaks, no problem. You just send your off-chain transaction to the Bitcoin blockchain, and you get your money back. So that's kind of a cool, cool little thing that that you can do. Um, that I think uh, if you're a hardware manufacturer, you you might be interested in. All right, that's really cool. I didn't actually read about that one, so I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Um. All right. So I just kind of want to jump into kind of broader kind of Bitcoin and Lightning questions here. Yeah, yeah, loving the questions is fun. <laughs> uh, I like to kind of just ask, you know, where do you see kind of Bitcoin going in the kind of short term here? So maybe like five years, you know, w- what do you think it's going to look like? Yeah, I, th- I think as fee pressure uh, continues to mount, I think the layer two solutions are just going to be increasingly more important. And that is, I think, where more attention is going to go towards. And Lightning at the moment, obviously, is receiving a lot of attention already. So so people are definitely building there. And that's really awesome to see. So yeah, I guess Lightning also will become more important. And uh, I think what we're noticing in terms of uh, development of, uh, of Bitcoin Core uh, is that I, I feel it's been slowing down compared to before. And that's probably a good thing. Anthony Towns had an interesting uh, 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 set of tweets about it. Um, saying that, well, essentially, people are going to be more and more demanding of the security requirements of the, you know, of the code being up to par. Um, people really have whether they have thought it through, and we're seeing that with Schnorr and Taproot, where uh, people are really being increasingly careful. So, I think that's really kind of a sign that we are, I think, very slowly, just in- incrementally slowing down development. By being more demanding of of you know making sure every new change is is really secure and safe, and that is kind of moving us towards ossification very very slowly. You know we'll just see. I don't think we'll see like okay tomorrow we're gonna stop making any changes, but I'll just I think we're gonna continue to see changes rolling out more and more slowly. And that's also why you know I was saying earlier on that say guys no input might take a while because I, I think that's. That's kind of the trend. Got it. So I'm just going to keep going through these kind of questions. I'm not going to probably probe too too deep at this point since I feel like we're kind of running a little bit longer than I, than I expected. Yeah, sure. A question that I kind of like to ask a lot is how do you think, you know, we as Bitcoiners, you know, whatever that means, how do we help to kind of stimulate the closed loop or circular economy? You know, how can we make that a reality sooner than later? Yeah. So you mean like having actual places where you can... Uh, pay with Bitcoin and and have it kind of move, right? Like a, through, through the economy in a way that's more natural than just 
speculation. Yeah, so maybe I'll kind of uh, just lay out what I, exactly what I uh, think yeah. that means. So, you know, here in, in the United States, you know, there's stores where you can buy marijuana in certain states. I kind of envision, you know, they accept Bitcoin for purchasing the marijuana. They, uh, you know, pay their vendors in Bitcoin and maybe they even pay their employees in Bitcoin. And so, you know, people wouldn't have to necessarily, you know, sell their Bitcoin. They would just use it. They get paid it. You know, it just keeps going in a circle. And that's, you know, how I would kind of uh, lay it out there. Yeah. So I, I think the best way of, of thinking about that is like every step of the way, just asking the question, does it make sense for them to use Bitcoin? And if it doesn't, then why not? And then thinking about whether or not that's going to change. So I think when you're talking about a transaction that's illegal or a transaction that's gray and is likely to get you into trouble with with banking partners, like uh, you know, I know some marijuana dispensers they're, they're having trouble uh, having bank accounts, then the answer is kind of yes, okay, I, I want to accept Bitcoin uh, for payments. Uh, because I know it's kind of a better alternative, you know, cash or Bitcoin. Okay, great. Uh, and then secondly is, well, the people that work there, do they don't want cash or do they want Bitcoin? And and there I'm thinking, well, would you really, you know, like we are all Bitcoiners. We like Bitcoin. We like to buy Bitcoin. So therefore, we wouldn't mind getting paid in Bitcoin. But that's still speculation, right? You You want to buy it to hold it for the future. So the only way you would want to accept Bitcoin as, as payment for your work is, is if you want to be kind of a speculator or if you have like, you know, trust that Bitcoin is going to do well in the future. And and that's that's not really kind of a natural, you know, that that's still kind of speculation. So I think it's inevitable that until until we get to a point where somebody just says like, hey, um, yeah, sure. Uh, Bitcoin, fiat. I don't. I don't care. Or I slightly prefer Bitcoin because it's a little bit less inflationary. Um, sure, I'll, I'll take Bitcoin. And then they go, you know, somewhere else and they spend it. Like until we get to that point, um, it's just going to be speculation. It's going to be speculation all the way. Uh, and I think that's just inevitable. So, so trying to force that loop or trying to ask people to to do that, I think if it doesn't make sense for them, it, it's just not going to happen. So we need, I think. Bitcoin just needs to grow. Bitcoin needs to be held by more people. It needs to get increasingly stable. And then, you know, slowly it just becomes more convenient where you say like, okay, I get paid in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is stable enough, so I don't really mind. Or, uh, you know, there will be use cases that are a little bit more illegal or there's a little bit more friction. Like, you know, if you're trying to send money to the other side of the world, well, if you use banking, maybe you have to pay, you know, 20 to 50 bucks. So you, you you get rid of that through Bitcoin. And I think we'll just slowly get to a point where finally Bitcoin is so useful that everybody just thinks of it as money. But this will be a slow process, and I think it will be largely preceded by speculation. All right. I think I would probably agree with all of that. So I want to ask kind of you know broad questions about Lightning here before we wrap up. Have you used Lightning much yourself kind of on a personal basis? I mean, I've, I've played around with it. I wouldn't say it is quite like... I mean, the thing that I find difficult is that the, you know, there's still a lot of routing issues and it's still very experimental. So I think it's fun to play around with, um, but it doesn't really strike me as um, ready for, for uh, you know, main use. And I think that's going to take many years. So, so for me, it's just kind of fun and experimental, but 
I don't I don't think it's like super you know ready for for primetime use. But but one of the things that I I've been kind of wanting to do and and we used to do at the meetup is we had this um, we had this basically go we would go for dinner after the meetup and then one person would pay in, in fiat and then everybody else would pay that person in Bitcoin and um, we kind of stopped doing that after the you know after the bubble and uh, and the fees going up so everybody was kind of like oh yeah that's uh, that's not really viable anymore and then after that it just kind of you know it just kind of feels wrong to do when you know that fees will go up in the future so it's just like you know why yes it's possible now in the bitcoin blockchain but will it really be possible in the future and i guess i feel kind of similar about lightning where i'm just a little hesitant to get excited about it you know because i feel like we we have this similar uh similar issue coming uh but yeah i, I think uh i think i would like to kind of find a way to have like uh, you know me and my fellow bitcoiners here to have a little you know, closed loop circled economy of uh, of lightning uh, uh, routes where we we pay each other after after having dinner. So so I would like to kind of like get to that point. And uh, so far, I, I don't know if you have any recommendations of a wallet that makes it particularly easy. The one that I've seen that makes it easy is kind of you know custodial. So that didn't really seem appealing to me. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sure we're we're getting getting close to that point. But uh, I, I still don't think it's it's quite that easy to to achieve. What do you think? I mean, I, th- I think I might be kind of biased. You know, I, I do host a, a podcast called Lightning Junkies, so I think I'm a little biased. And Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had gone to the Lightning Conference in Berlin, and it was like I was transported to a different universe where Lightning is, you know, used by everyone, and everyone has it, and, yep. you know, by cocktails, by beer, by ice cream with Lightning. Yep. And that felt very magical, and it had all these, uh, you know, kind of reminded me of Bitcoin in 2013, 2014, when everyone was using it at, you know, various merchants yep. and thinking that was going to keep on going, like you were kind of saying yeah. earlier. But I guess my my uh, question, um, kind of follow-up, would be, you know, you're kind of touching on some reason to be skeptical of the Lightning Network. Yeah. Do you have any other ones that you would want to kind of throw out there that you kind of that are a real kind of sticking point for you. No, I mean, I, I think I've, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've made made my points <laughs> to a okay. to a fault almost, right? Like, I, I, you know, like the the excitement is is real, and I think it's good to have that excitement, uh, and it, it is really cool. And I, I've organized lightning hackathons here and and done little projects where people, you know, create create little apps. Uh, I've created an app of my own even, which is like a little chat room where uh, it's called Limit Chat, where basically you. You have to pay some money to send a message, and it, it's kind of spam control because if you if you wait ten minutes, the the price will go down again. But if you if you try to spend a, a send another message before the ten minutes are up, you kind of have to pay more. And if you continue to do that, you have to pay more and more and more. So it, it, you know it's it's kind of like a uh, yeah a, ch- a chat room that's that's limited in payments. That was a little fun little project to do and. Uh, yeah, you know, I used uh, Open Note, I think, which is basically kind of uh, you know they run a lightning uh, lightning uh, note for you, so it kind of makes it easy. Uh, but it, it definitely was fun to do, and I do think uh, it, it's good to kind of stimulate people to think about that. You know, I, I kind of just want both, right? I want people to be excited and and work on it and and do these cool things, but I also want them to know that that you know the the thing that you're doing like you go there and you you spent you spent money you buy things with lightning and you, you get a glimpse of the future but that future is far away we're not there it's going to take a long time and if you 
you know, if you think next year is going to be the time when everybody's doing this, like that's, you're going to be disappointed and, and that's not good either. Right. So be excited, but know that we're still a long way out. Yeah. I mean, as, as much as I want it to, to you know, be here uh, tomorrow, I definitely realize that there's, you know, still a good amount of issues, you know, in Bitcoin and lightning, you know, I think Bitcoin definitely works and all that, but I, you know, there's a lot of things that really need to be worked on in order for, you know, my friends that generally don't care about these things to actually care about these things. Yep. So I, I kind of remember the questions I, ha- I had before. So you were kind of asking me, you know, is there a wallet that, you know, you yeah. might recommend to make it easy? I, I really like Breeze Wallet. You know, they're, they're not a sponsor or anything like that, but mm-hmm. I definitely feel like they're not custodial. Um, the only kind of maybe trade-off is that they open up a a, a million uh, SAT uh, channel to you directly, so they serve as a kind of centralized hub in some sense. So that you know might be a trade-off, but I think for for what for what it is, I think it's really good. It kind of gives you you know most of the control and everything, and most people probably aren't going to be doing transactions you know over that limit. You know they're gonna you know, be going on to y'alls or there might be, you know, sending back $20 here and there. Yeah. etc. So I think that might be kind of up your alley to, you know, serve the function that you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's true. Yeah. I, I, I think I gotta like sit down and think about that. Like, because you know, like you said, like, right, you're using a hub. It, it's not really like, it's kind of, it's kind of forcing the lightning network to work in a way that, yeah, sure, it works like that, but it doesn't scale like that, right? Like, it's not like everybody can have a channel with the, the Breeze server and, uh, and that's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to inevitably fail, right? So, uh, but yeah, I, I do agree. It's like, it's a trustless setup and it works. And it's definitely better than doing something that's just fully custodial because like there's also a couple of wallets out there that are like, you know, they they run the uh, the Lightning, uh, uh, Lightning Hub for you and then, I mean that just kind of seems a little weird, right? Then you're then you're really back to the Coinbase model. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm not going to claim that uh, I don't use a custodial wallet sometimes. Like I definitely run my own uh, LND node um, yeah. for actually routing, but um, I did find myself using the uh, you know wallet of Satoshi at the Lightning conference just because it was kind of low bandwidth and it just kind of it's worked faster. So unfortunately, yeah. I kind of had to cheat a little <laughs> bit there. Yeah, right. But well, again, like it's good to see and feel the future. Like as long as you're just aware of what you're doing, I think it's absolutely fine. One one other thing that uh, I guess I'm a little like I need to think about this a little bit more. But uh, you know, a lot of these uh, wallets they they are they are light clients, and they you know they use uh, Neutrino in order to uh, sync with the server. And I do think like Luke Jr. made some comments about that. That is not you know, a fully trustless wallet if you're, if you're not connecting to your own full node. So I think that's kind of like another one of those um, questions, I guess, that I have is like, well, how much are you, are you trusting someone if you, if you don't connect it to your, to your own full node? But I guess that's, uh, you know, that's also where we're moving towards where, where people can just, you know, and I, that's pretty cool, I think. Like you just throw a Raspberry Pi in the corner of your room, uh, you have it connected and your, your phone connects to that. And that, that seems to be kind of like a, like a way through that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, either a Raspberry Pi, a Casa, a Nodal. I uh, definitely like those products. Um, you know, I definitely feel like that's the, uh, the future. We're going get to get a lot more of the kind of hardware products out there. So uh, one thing uh, I, I guess I can uh, 
mention is that there's a, a recent mailing list post that I made about uh, so-called proof-of-work fraud proofs. And this is kind of an idea that uh, actually connects to Lightning indirectly because, uh, you know, you, you guys or Lightning people in general, they, you know, there's a lot of light client uh, work out there. And uh, proof-of-work fraud proofs are actually kind of a way to uh, uh, enhance SPV nodes. So if you're an SPV wallet, uh, what you're doing is you're trusting kind of the most proof of work and uh, proof of work fraud proofs are kind of a way to reject proof of work when it's invalid. So let's say you have uh, you know, 90% of all miners um, creating a block that is not actually correct. Then if you're an SPV wallet, you're just going to follow it because it's the most proof of work. And with proof of work fraud proofs, what you're doing is basically you will see that minority miner, that, that remaining 10% create a block. And that will kind of prompt you to um, recognize that maybe the, uh, the block that, uh, that that 10% is rejecting uh, because, because they're forking off, maybe that block is invalid. And uh, it's kind of a method to then download and verify that block. And, and that makes it possible to, even though you run a light client, to uh, reject the most proof of work. And, and that makes uh, SPV nodes safer. It's still not a replacement for a full note, but that's a that's a little bit of interesting uh, tech. If uh, if there are any uh, people that are working on wallets and they're interested in light clients, absolutely. I think I'm going to end up having to uh, listen to that explanation again to really rock it. <laughs> I feel like it's getting slightly late here, so my mind is not picking up everything that I wanted to pick up at the moment. For sure. Yeah, and it's a bit techy also. Uh, I recommend just reading the uh, the mailing list post. Uh, I don't know if you have any show notes, but maybe we can put a link there for uh, for the listeners. Yep, absolutely. I'll definitely throw that into the, uh, the show notes once I uh, work on this here. All right. Um, I think I'm kind of reaching the end here. I uh, typically yep. try to keep these to about an hour and we're kind of approaching an hour and a half. We are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to go ahead and let the listeners know how they can, you know, find you and maybe how to maybe find any other uh, explanations about state chains? Yeah. So I have uh, on my Twitter uh, account, which is at Samson Rubin, S-O-M-S-E-N-R-U-B-E-N. Uh, I have a pinned tweet with links to all my state chain talks, uh, the paper, the medium post that, that you mentioned before we started the show. You know, I've given presentations at Scaling Bitcoin Tokyo, uh, at Breaking Bitcoin in Amsterdam. Uh, so those two presentations are there about state chains. Um, so check those out. And uh, yeah, there's also, I think, a write-up of uh, one of the Core Dev meetings. Uh, so that's a little bit more technical, but that might be interesting too. Uh, so check out those links and um, yeah. And other than that, go listen to Unha- Unhashed Podcast, unhashedpodcast.com. It's a fun little show where, you know, it's a little bit more bantery, but uh, you know, I talk technical stuff there too. So uh, if you, if you're interested in that, go check it out. Well, I, I really appreciate you joining me on the Lightning uh, Junkies podcast. This has probably been much more of a uh, conversational podcast. I'm not usually used to doing that. I'm still kind of new to this whole, this okay. whole thing. But uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast uh, tonight. Yeah, no, I thought it was fun. I thought you asked some good questions. Like it's nice to, yeah, I guess, you know, like as a as a somebody who comes on the show, like, you know, I, I was prepared to talk about state chains, but it's good that you like, you know, gave a bunch of questions about like just general Bitcoin stuff. And I, I think that's also good to kind of get more opinions off people who are working on these things. Uh, and, you know, the I think the real advantage of podcasts in general is that you have a little bit more 
time and space to to have to give nuance because like you know if you go on twitter everybody has these little short little quips about like lightning is going to be amazing solve everything and even though they don't think that <laughs> you know that's that's all they get to say because that's that's uh that's twitter so you know like these kinds of podcasts i think are, are great for people to just kind of give a little bit more of an explanation of what they really think. So so I thought that was great. You asked a lot of uh, good questions. So what you're saying is lightning is literally a panacea. It will solve all the issues, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Thank you for, uh, yeah, you can, you can quote me on that. Yeah, that's uh, exactly what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, man. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. I, I really appreciate you joining me, man. It was It was great. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks a lot. Boom. That was a lightning strike of an episode. Okay, that was a kind of a dorky thing to say, but I definitely feel like this was a really good episode. I think I learned quite a lot and I had a really good time, you know, just talking about different subjects and, you know, learning a lot of things here. If you learned anything from this particular episode, once again, I would please ask that you contribute to my crowdfunding campaign, crowdfund.lightningjunkies.net. Once again, if you uh, chip in more than 100,000 sats, I will be throwing in a Lightning Junkie sticker. If you're unable to financially support the show, I would definitely ask that you subscribe and post a review on the relevant podcasting platform that you might be using, as well as uh, share the show on social media. That would help me tremendously as well. But with that, I am going to end the show, so I'll see you on the Lightning Network.